Welcome to the American Vandal, a podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Each year, the Center hosts a Quarry Farm Symposium. On the property where Samuel Clemens and his family spent their summers, and where Mark Twain wrote Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and much more, a small group of scholars gather to share work and converse. Unfortunately, Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we were forced to migrate the symposium online this year. You can view all of the presentations on our YouTube channel or by visiting the events menu at marktwainstudies.org, or you can follow the link in the show notes. Today, I'm talking with the organizer of the 2020 Quarry Farm Symposium, Dr. Judith Yaros Lee, who also wrote the essay upon which it is based, also available in the program downloadable at marktwainstudies.org. Dr. Lee recently retired from Ohio University, where she was a distinguished professor of communication studies and director of the Central Region Humanities Center. She is one of our foremost scholars in American Humor Studies, having served for many years on the boards of the American Humor Studies Association and its journal, Studies in American Humor, which she edited from 2014 to 2018. She has written books on The Humor of the New Yorker magazine and Garrison Keillor. In 2013, she published Twain's Brand, Humor in Contemporary American Culture, one of the most important works of the last decade in Twain's studies. Her most recent book, co-edited with John Byrd, is a collection of essays on Mad Magazine, titled Seeing Mad, which is scheduled for publication from University of Missouri Press next month and is currently available for pre-order. But today, we're talking about her work in progress, a project which she has been pondering for at least two decades, and which, as she will discuss, is an attempt to synthesize several, sometimes competing paradigms in American humor studies. Here's Judith Yaros Lee on American humor and matters of empire. You first introduced this project to me a couple of years ago at the quadrennial meeting of the American Humor Studies Association, uh, though I know that it goes back uh, for quite some time before that. And so I was wondering if you could describe to us how this set of questions and ideas first formulated for you. So in the um, mid-2000s, I was invited to participate by Larry Burkhove in an ALA session on the International Twain. And when I was thinking about this, I was reading, as so many people were, Amy Kaplan's essay about the anarchy of empire. And she made a claim that said, Mark Twain's famous homespun qualities were woven from the tangled thread of imperial tra- threads of imperial travel. And then she said the national identity of Mark Twain, his Americanness, was forged in an international context of imperial expansion. And I thought to myself, you know, this is a proposal. 
this is old news, but it's not just Mark Twain. It's all of American humor, and especially the American humor that was designated as distinctly American. That is the whole idea of distinctive Americanness in American literature and and especially in American literary humor was always from the very beginning American in contrast and comparison with its English, that is British counterparts. So I began thinking about this, like, why is this not, why is this like old news for me, but it seems like such contemporary news um, because, of course, people in American studies were really beginning to probe the conception of empire and imperialism in this period of the early 2000s. I realized that uh, Walter Blair had in... 1937, in his book, Native American Humor, talked about the development of an American humor as distinct from its British forebears and counterparts um, by talking about dialect, by talking about American characters. And he told the kind of the history of uh, certain jokes that were Americanized, specifically the ways in which certain folk characters and a certain um, change in valence of American dialect marked the separation uh, and the development of the United States and its own identity as distinct from, from its colonial identity. And so I began to, th- to read more about um, post-colonial theory and especially about the role of dialect in post-colonial writing, or the local language, the local version of the imperial dialect, and to think about English language as part of why Mark Twain took the roots he did. I mean, he took the roots he did both in his, on his international travels as a lecturer, especially in the 1890s. He took those roots that were imperial because that's where people spoke English. That's where people read him and that's where people right. could appreciate his lecture. But I began to think again about how for somebody who studies American humor, not just Mark Twain and somebody who studies American humor in the whole historical context from the 18th century to the present, that this was not news to me, but it was certainly news to a lot of other people. So I began rethinking, how should I tell this story about American humor? I began to think about the vernacular tradition in particular, which had long since, say for 50, 60 years, long since been understood as a particularly both American and also democratic form, because it valorized the dialect speaker who, in English humor, was always the butt of the joke, not the hero of the joke. That was one of the reversals between the British formulas and the American formulas that Blair documented. So if you begin to then contextualize Mark Twain's use of these Um, devices in the history of American humor, then it's very conventional. But it also has a very conventional ideological and political meaning. 
these things get complicated in a political culture in which American dialect speakers are adopting this vulnerable position vis-a-vis the British Empire at the same point that they are using that position to advance American, North American, U.S. American imperial interests. And I began to see that that was really the issue. Uh, And so in an article I published called The The International Twain, but subtitled Vernacular Humor as a Postcolonial Rhetoric, I tried to outline the history of the ideology embedded in vernacular humor, which is the dominant mode that Mark Twain adopts. He used it in this very conventional way, but how it began to break down when he used it in a more imperialist context, such as in uh, Connecticut Yankee. That dissonance between the ideology embedded in the form and the ideology embedded in the theme of Connecticut Yankee really is part of its complication and part of its narrative problems, but also part of the embeddedness of the humor in an ideology related to empire, not just imperialism, not just anti-imperialism, but many what I've come since to call matters of empire, which are both rhetorical and thematic, um, both embedded in the conventional techniques of humor and the themes that they are put in the service of. Earliest uses of these devices were associated with a kind of nationalist impulse to see them then that nationalism embedded more formally in a post-colonial framework was very useful. But then I began thinking more and more about it. So first, in Twain's brand, I thought about it, well, what other humorists have used this? So I traced it in the work of Philip Roth, who uses many of these vernacular devices and also used them to probe the U.S. as an empire, but he did it in a reverse way because he talked about all of the important things in the world, all the important political issues in the world coming to the United States. So he, instead of exporting them, like Mark Twain moves Hank Morgan from Connecticut to Britain, Philip Roth imports all of them. You know, he imagines Kafka as his um, Hebrew school teacher in New Jersey. And he imagines all of World War II taking place on baseball, in a baseball field. Part of what's so interesting about how you're conceiving of the matters of empire is that I think traditionally or conventionally, when we tell the, the narrative of cultural imperialism, it is a a dominant Western culture that is imparting its values through its forms upon native and often global South nation. This is the the story that uh, Ngugi Wan Tiango tells in Decolonizing the Mind, right? That it's it's the English language, right? That becomes the tool by which colonization happens. And I think what's really interesting about your work and what it shares maybe with Said and, and with Amy Kaplan, right? Is the idea that 
the routes go both ways, right? That this process of colonization uh, and the, the spread of empire uh, also reverses course, right? And that many of the tools that we associate with colonial domination also either began with a way of finding a sort of national identity or reverse course, certainly that's Kaplan's argument, in order to sustain our manifest destiny, we need to create a manifest domesticity. Yeah, and I guess the reason that vectors appeals to me more than routes is that I want to think not only about territory, but about rhetorical influence. So then when I, after I wrote Twain's Brand and I was thinking more and more about this, I began thinking, well, but what about colonial continuity, imperial continuity? Where does, where does that fit? I mean, if I'm going to rethink vernacular humor as a post-colonial rhetoric, what are the implications for other kinds of humor? And I was getting ready to take over the editorship of Studies in American Humor, began to think, what do I want to accomplish with this journal? And I had already been very aware of the ways in which so many parts of American Humor Studies were just splintering ethnic, uh, racial categories, gender categories, um, historical periods, media. Every one of them was developing its own little literature or even big literature, and these literatures were not speaking to each other. I had learned in the process up until then of uh, writing the annual review of scholarship for studies in American humor that the, each of the kinds of scholarship that were being produced was using a self-contained body of literature and um, people were not learning from each other, but they couldn't see connections between their works. And the connections that were being made were often very superficial, or they were just thematic. Was there another way to think about these traditions that might draw them together? And also, because humor scholarship exploded after the mid-90s, the late 90s, and had been kind of a desert for, for a couple of decades, it seemed like it was really important to think about ways in which there could be a humor studies that addressed American cultural issues and that understood the media, media environments, the social and political environments, and so on, as having some kind of connection that would be productive. What other ways could we think about traditions involving empire and imperialism? Um, I could see that the Euro European American Studies programs, where I hope to do a Fulbright, uh, many of them were interested in American empire. And so that was another way of thinking about it. And how, how could I mm -hmm. both learn in those environments and also teach in those environments? Uh, so I began thinking, well, if there's a post-colonial that presumes before it <laughs> um, an imperial, a period of imperial continuity, and that suddenly there was like um, a light bulb that went off as a way of thinking about the parts of American humor that often get shunted aside because they're not, they don't make sense in this nationalist context right. that has been so dominant. Things that were more continuous with European 
graphic humor were again pushed to the margins. So I began thinking, how do we change this? And then I began thinking about ethnic humors. How might they fit in? And is there a way to think about African-American humor that is continuous with, that brings it closer without erasure um, to other um, work going on in American humor. So, so that's how it grew in the, the, the essay, uh, American humors and matters of empire um, was the title of my Fulbright project. It was the title of my graduate seminar that I taught. And a lot of the works that I, mentioned in there were works that were on the syllabus. And one of the surprises in there was to think about empire again more broadly. Um, so what about the Dutch contributions? <laughs> the Dutch had a had colonies, right? There was New Netherland. Um, and there is a Hudson River Valley School of American Humor known as the Knickerbocker School that almost never gets talked about by anybody. But does, is there a way to think about that in a more, you know, in the context of empire? That- and, and when it does get talked about, it gets talked about as an American nationalist humor instead of as a Dutch imperialist humor. That's kind of fascinating. It is. And it was really interesting to discuss this with Dutch students who said, you know, all these jokes about the Dutch people, these are longstanding jokes about the English and the Dutch that they have for each other. And that was just fascinating to learn about from those students. Oh, that's that's wonderful. I wanted to go back to the to the question of the, the splintering that you talk about, which I find very interesting. But particularly the idea that America that splintering was happening in part because the academic study of American humor was exploding. Right? And you suggest that that sort of started in the 1990s. You started to see this subfield of, uh, you know, American studies or of American uh, literature suddenly having a, an attention that it did not have for most of the 20th century. What do you think brought about that sort of rise in scholarly interest in humor as uh, an aesthetic, as a politics, as a, as a field of study. In the 1960s, American studies was a very small interdisciplinary field. The growth and expansion of the professor at the greater legitimacy of popular culture studies in particular, I think, is really important in the growth of American humor studies. I was cautioned when I wanted to write a dissertation on American humor. Mm-hmm. Um, I was cautioned that I would be seen as a lightweight. And so I better develop at least one special field in a really heavy hitting field. So I did one in theory, <laughs> rhetorical theory, right. for which I'm always grateful because that's how I got a job. Yeah. Uh, teaching theory. I taught theory for 30 years. But I only recently became a theorist. So that's kind of interesting. <laughs> as part of that, growth and interest in American popular culture studies. Associated with that has, was the growth of gender studies, minority studies of various kinds, greater respect, diversity in the, of the faculties, diversity of um, fields of study in the humanities. Um, media studies seems to be something that is now very linked to humor studies. Yeah. Yeah. There was almost no, there were no media studies when I was in college. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There were almost no ethnic studies when I was in college. I mean, when I was, I took the very first course in what was then called black 
American Lit at Oberlin College in 1968 or 69. I mean, it's a long time ago. <laughs> and there was a rebellion because the students in the course, it was a very diverse group of students. Oberlin was a pretty diverse and politically radical place in the 60s. Um, students were outraged that the professor was white. But then there were no black, you know, there, there were only a handful of black faculty in those days. And Oberlin, again, was a pretty open place. And, and American literature was not, didn't have high status. Right. <laughs> and so I think the growth of respectability of American cultural studies, the growth of cultural studies, right. per se, the growth in theory all of those things have gone into making uh, humor studies more salient. You know, there was in the 60s a very great sense of life is absurd. Today, we would say that's the beginning of postmodern awareness, but that was certainly not the sense there. But by the late 90s, that was being very seriously theorized. And, and those theories were, had a lot of uptake in a very serious way. It was not marginal at all. It was beginning to be quite central right. to humanistic study of all kinds. And so I think humor became available as a topic. I wouldn't say now it has a tremendous amount of respectability or visibility, right. but I'm, I'm doing my best yeah. <laughs> um, to help that happen. The timeline that you just gave, one of the things that stuck out to me is that a lot of the fields of inquiry that you see growing between the 60s and the 90s have been shrinking in the last two decades, right? Certainly, uh, the exception maybe being media studies, but certainly, you know, uh, you know, African-American studies departments are under siege. American studies departments are oh, under siege. Yeah. Right. That, you know, and I, speaking as somebody who was in college in the 1990s, the American studies department at, at Wash U, where I was, I was the first part of the first class to go through that. That was a new department when I was there in the late 90s. And, you know, in the two decades since then, right, it has gone from being this really growing, thriving, uh, reliably uh, sort of staffed field to one that is now again under under siege. Right? And so I think it it's interesting that there was this sort of period of growth from, you know, the late 60s to the mid 90s. And now there's been a similar period of decline in all those fields, which might also explain why you know, humor studies is is struggling to find a, a, a sort of identity in, in the midst of that sort of rapid change in the popularization of these disciplines. The sort of concise history of humor studies that you just gave suggests that this is a field that really never had a canon, right? Because it was grounded in a aesthetic or in a method, right? It doesn't. It, it doesn't. It doesn't have a historical or temporal justification. It doesn't have a, a purely geographic justification, and therefore, it sounds as though over the last twenty years, you've kind of been searching for a canon. But on the other hand, this comes to you pre pre decolonized, <laughs> right? Oh, that's really interesting. I guess I. That's really really interesting. I wouldn't say there wasn't a canon, but there was a canon that was developed by Walter Blair. And that mm -hmm. was pretty static, and it excluded right. women. It could allow a few ethnic producers in, 
uh, if they were part of the vernacular tradition, for example, if they were part of the dialect tradition. So you got Mr. Dooley, uh, Peter Finley Dunn. You got Jesse Simple, Langston Hughes. So if they could be somehow incorporated into the dialect tradition that dates back to, say, Jack Downing in the 1830s and... Um, and of course, you know, works its way through to Huckleberry Finn, then they were admitted. And you could squeeze some women in there too. Um, but you couldn't squeeze too many women in there. You couldn't, you, you had no place for somebody like Carolyn Wells, uh, who did poetry. Uh, you had no room for, uh, unless you began to look at satire, and satire became somehow this different tradition then if you looked at satire, then you could have Fanny Fern, maybe, um, and you could bring in a few others. Um, so, you know, there the cracker. So there, there was a tradition. There was mostly the Cracker Barrel philosophy tradition of, of dialect speakers. And, but, of course, that did nothing to bring in film. I was just going to say, this is still an entirely print canon. At it that exactly point. is. And it yeah. doesn't let you think about, you know, cartoons. Um, which in print, but then of course animation. Right. Uh, so all of that is separate. So, so yeah, I guess you're right. I'm I'm trying to decolonize the canon while I'm building it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't that, thought about that. <laughs> there, it does feel like there is a kind of cro cross objectives there that that is really interesting and and also reminds us that. You know, one of the things we need in uh, in our scholarship is some sense of community, some sense that we are speaking to an audience, that we are part of a critical community, uh, that they, we have shared interests. Not, and as you said, it doesn't always mean expecting that many people are reading our work, <laughs> but it does mean that you know that a journal like American Humor Studies or a, a conference, right? You're going to to see people who have a set of shared interests, you know, have been doing some similar reading, and it sounds like that was not necessarily there for a period of this this disciplinary history. For most of it, yeah. And now, which brings is a natural place to talk about most recently you uh, organized this conference on American humor and matters and empire that actively brought together scholars that were clearly working in what would have been seen as sort of contrasting traditions in, in the, the earlier phase that you were talking about. Uh, and we had papers on silent film. We had papers on mid-century television. We had papers uh, certainly on uh, Mark Twain uh, and on 19th century American print culture, uh, so on and so forth, but a real range of mediums, range of historical periods. And so I, I, I wondered, First of all, how satisfying it was to see some of the community that you imagined decades ago kind of uh, coming together, and also how your thinking about this project changed by virtue of getting to engage in a, a sort of symposia based upon it. Well, the glow <laughs> is, is, you know, still burning. Um, it was an amazing couple of days. 
Um, and I was interested because I think in noting that most people knew maybe two other participants. Very right. few people knew a lot of them. I had corresponded with most of these people, but I didn't know their faces. Um, some of them I had been reading their work for many years. Uh, in, in the... So it was an amazing experience. I was really, there were a lot of things about it that were, of course, I mean, it was tremendously gratifying. I mean, let's just start there. If for most of your time, most of your life as a scholar, you know, throughout my whole arc, you feel like a lot of what you write is a message in a bottle, which may or may not get picked up. I mean, to have really smart people whose work I admire jumping off from my work, if not engaging it directly. I mean, what a thrill. I mean, you just can't, you can't bottle that. And I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot both from the individual papers and the, and the projects that people brought under this umbrella. Um, and so, for example, your paper, which I thought was really so interesting and engaged me because, of course, I've done some work myself on, on King Leopold's soliloquy. So we have to have a conversation about that some other time. Yeah. Um, but I was really interested in your seeing satire in the real world. What happens to the object of this satire and, and, and the um, political... Um, movement of which it's a part. Uh, and so that really gets beyond the, you know, what James Carone talks about the satire two-step, which is, you know, first you laugh and then you think. And mm -hmm. he doesn't hold that satire has much political efficacy beyond changing people's minds, but that mm -hmm. if the thought is parent to the deed, then obviously that is going to have some implications down the line. So I, that's just an example of an unanticipated approach, right, that you were going to look at uh, King Leopold's soliloquy as a yeah, political active uh, agent, as a political agent, uh, and the satire having agency in the political world uh, related to the imperialism of Belgium in the Congo. So I thought that was really interesting, and I gave me things to think about. Um, but what was really interesting to me was, despite my great effort at identifying matters of empire, it didn't mostly click. <laughs> and uh, most people talked about imperialism in the thematic sense. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Jim Carone was an exception there. Um, mm -hmm. So was Maggie Hennefeld in her... Mm -hmm. Uh, discussion of 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 slapstick as right. a um, metaphor for anarchy and and yeah. challenges to to um, patriarchal hegemony uh, and its relation to to World War One. So I thought you know those were really intriguing uh, uh, distinctions and the paper by Linda and Kate Morris about Native mm -hmm. American, which was very much focused on the rhetorical ways in which he is contesting empire from a post-colonial perspective. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But most people of, talk about imperialism in a thematic yeah. sense, and mostly they talked about anti-imperialism. Mm -hmm. And that just really gets at Americans' real discomfort <laughs> at, at accepting 
um, both settler colonialism as an imperial activity and our um, integration of ethnic cultures as an and 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 African Americans and Native Americans as colonial acts. That was that was a big lesson for me. Was um, that the the matters of empire peace is a pretty heavy lift from its yeah. rhetorical perspective? Yeah, let's. I, I think let's follow up on that. And just what do you think is the distinction between treating empire as a matter and treating it as a theme? Because I think that this is a difficult thing for us to to grapple with, but I also think it's a, it's it's really important. And it's not saying that they are mutually exclusive. They are not mutually exclusive right. because because the to think about it as a rhetorical material. So when I talk about matters, I really want to talk about the ma- the materials out of which you make humor. So you right. make humor out of. So, so, so take, um, I'm thinking about the Morris's work on the Monkmans right now because I'm fascinating. Yes. And by the way, go, you can, you can go see this presentation yourself at marktwainstudies.org and some um, amazing uh, paintings primarily that are sort of taking the Western art tradition and kind of inverting it in interesting ways to uh, to integrate a sort of satirical Native American trickster identity. When when we think about Native American art, you know, we, we just elide the fact that he's not that um, Kent Monkman is working in oil painting. Well, oil painting is a European art tradition. Right. Um, he's not producing indigenous vernacular art, <laughs> right? I mean, he, um, right. he's producing European monumental history paintings from a native point of view. Right. And he wants to queer that relationship in all kinds of ways. So the matters then include his native, uh, the native character figures in on his um, canvases. The figures certainly the um, the scenes that he's importing and the iconography that he's importing from European art. It includes the fact that he's doing oil paintings on canvas in these monumental sizes in a tradition that has a name, you know, history painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that, those are European matters. This is a yeah. hybrid production. But he's bringing a post-colonial sensibility to it because he is inverting who the heroes are. He's reversing the heroism. His Indians are very modern. So he's got them dressed up in headdresses and so on to mock. I mean, it's a parody of the of the European idea of an Indian as this serene uh, chief wearing. And so, but this macho figure is now queer and androgynous sometimes, often wearing high heels and bedecked with other 
modern, uh, you know, their modern um, artifacts populating the canvases, motorcycles and all kinds of other things. If a native art, there's a thing I was looking at today, um, one of Monkman's paintings, um, artist and model, and the model is a European American who's been shot with arrows and is tied to a tree and has a 19th century camera at his feet. And the uh, Native American, this chief artist, uh, whom we see from behind, is painting him on a deerskin in lieu of canvas, painting a stick figure. So here we have the Native American art tradition being made fun of from the point of view of a contemporary Native American artist working in this European tradition of painting and who is capturing whom, right? I mean, right. we're talking about capturing an image, right? But he's captured, she, Miss Chief has captured the, the, uh, your, the Euro-American photographer, but is also capturing him on uh, deerskin. So, you know, I mean, there's this kind of um, mise en beam of representations of representations of representations uh, going on there. Um, but to just say this is Native American humor without, I mean, I think there's a lot to be gained by thinking about it in terms of settler colonialism, resistance to said colonialism, and yet saying you don't have the right to represent what a Native person is or looks like. I'm going to represent that and I'm going to take some of your, some of the, so the matters of, 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 Indian representation, including the headdress, the feathers and all that. I'm going to turn it into a boa. I'm going to turn it into, you know, other kinds of things. I'm going to queer it in all kinds of ways. So the matters are all of those representational devices and the forms that they take. That's the matter out of which you make the painting, right? Um, And so the degree to which those are reflective of multiple... um, cultural traditions and how the power and how the the vectors of approval critique and so on are are employed is what i think you get by thinking about it in terms of matters of empire because this whole production wouldn't exist if european imperial you know if the european invasion had not taken place and if the europeans hadn't claimed the right to represent native peoples in certain ways and to choose how they represented them and you know as this vanishing this vanishing uh civilization or whatever so the matter is all of those components the monkman example is is so great because he is so actively engaged in what we would traditionally describe as a cultural appropriation, but he's doing it in with inverse power relationships, right? Where the, the appropriator is from a position of an oppressed people. Uh, and I think that one of the things that you're encouraging us to think about it, when thinking about matter, right, is that, that the tools of making art, right, have an ideological component just as much as the content of the art that is made. Well, the content comes out of the materials. Right. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. absolutely. So they're not, they're not separable, 
but yeah. they they might be uh, identifiable. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's a McLuhan element to it, right? That the medium it's is a, a formalist. Message. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a yeah. formalist. Um, it is a formalist approach. But I guess the thing is that I also think it's useful in thinking about areas of continuity. And one of the examples I give in the article that I think is really worth thinking about is the um, the romantic comedy, mm-hmm. um, which comes to uh, Amer- to Hollywood direct from Shakespeare um, and is highly uh, conventional in, in its gender and class politics uh, and that it's useful for thinking about the conservatism, the political conservatism of the romantic comedy in light of its historical uptake so I give two examples in the article, and I think there are three that are important. One is the number of remakes of The Taming of the Shrew. Um, right. Another is the, um, but, you know, these, these gender politics are precisely bound in the heteronormativity and the, the conservatism of who is an appropriate person to marry um, that comes from the English stage. I mean, we haven't, we can't quite cope with that. So even a, a movie like uh, Raising Arizona that plays with that so that the woman is named Ed and I mean, the, the vectors of power and the couple are pretty interesting too. As a, as a, as a romantic comedy, this, this movie is a mess because it, it can't really find a satisfactory ending although it does claim one that, you know, the couple are happily ever, live happily ever after um, when they give up those children. Uh, and then a movie like um, Kate and Leopold, in which this highly competent woman has to become a ditz, and then she gets whisked off to the 19th century, and she gets taken from New York back to England so that the fourth Duke of Albany can come back and save New York for the future by inventing the elevator. I mean, I think that is just as interesting a set of problems um, as to why this genre has so much um, staying power, and yet Mm -hmm. it's tremendously problematic in terms of class, uh, in race, Mm-hmm. Uh, and gender. And is it even possible to be resistant or subversive within that genre, right? That is, you know, as soon as you take on that generic tradition for the purposes of gaining an audience, because as you said, it's so, it's so popular. Is it even possible to forward its politics or are they so ingrained in the matter, right? That you can't escape them. I think, you know, I think that, that what I'm trying to do is raise that question. Yeah. Well, I, I, the, another example you use in the article that, that really got me thinking in part because it's, it's part of a, a sort of project that I'm in the early stages on was the observation that The Daily Show has all these imitations, sometimes 
expressly made by the same production companies and other times just, you know, imitating the form all over the world. Something that I was not really aware of, right? That The Daily Show has these imitators in, in various national traditions. And it raises this question of, you know, this form of liberal resistance, if we want to call it that, does it actually do anything or, you know, the appropriation of this, you know, comedic satire form into pop culture all over the world, is it kind of defanging uh, other potential political forms and political movements? The degree to which any of these things, any of these productions actually challenge power in any substantial way is really open to question. I do not know. I'm not saying they don't. Yeah. You know, there are places in the world where you can end up in prison for criticizing the government uh, Mm -hmm. or certain individuals within it. So, um, and some of them are countries we think of as being, you know, pretty civilized places like Thailand. Um, you can't criticize the king of Thailand. Right. Um, so, so I, so I don't know. I think that's one of the things that I think makes it really significant to think about national traditions, um, because media productions are subject to the laws of the locations in which they take place, mm-hmm. in which they're produced and consumed. So. We do have all kinds of First Amendment protections here that do not exist in a lot of other places. And yet we also have restrictions here that do not exist in other places. So, you know, you can do anything on cable, but you can't necessarily do anything on broadcast TV um, because broadcast TV is subject to oversight by the FCC because they use the public airwaves and um, the Communication Acts of 1934 does not cover cable. Cable is exempt from those. Uh, and so the only thing you can't do on cable is stuff that no um, sponsor will support. But that's its own kind of constraint. Right. So so one of the problems with failing to look, you know, with looking internationally rather than within national traditions, the, there are limits to national traditions. And I want to be able to talk about a Canadian first, first uh, people's a uh, member like uh, uh, Monkman, who is Cree, because there is so much overlap between uh, across the history of North America. You know, the, the mechanics of production are controlled mm-hmm. differently. And we have to think about the means of production and who controls them. This is your bailiwick, yeah, right? Who absolutely. Production. And, and it's easy. And that's something that's also easy to forget when you're talking to people who work all in the same medium all to people who work in print or all to people who work in film mm-hmm. or all to people yeah. who work in radio or television, whatever that becomes kind of, kind of the under understood, but it's yeah. not to be understood. It's a constraint. Um, yeah. It's part of what gets through the filter and part of what is held back, you know, the dregs. Um, well, that's, that strikes me as one of the, the great for, and as you said, this is kind of my bailiwick, so not a surprise, but one of the great advantages of your project is that it calls for a comparative approach to means of production, right? A, a comparative approach to the economic circumstances of text. And I think that that it can be very, very fruitful, right? Because as you said, so often 
we work within particular mediums, within particular genres, within particular periods in which quite, you know, purposefully the structures of economic power become kind of hidden, right? Well, they're but, back right there, wallpaper. They're just right, exactly. there because it's an even playing field within that. Right. And so once we you know, start to put these, uh, these texts in uh, conversation with one another and into a comparative context, that's one of the, the things that exposes those, those mechanisms of production. I'll I, I want to ask one more question, I think, which you use uh, Edward Said for this purpose in your uh, article. Uh, Maggie Hennefeld used Hannah Arendt in a similar way. And Negri. Uh, and Negri. And, and, yeah, absolutely. Right? As one of the sort of theoretical backdrops to Matter of Empire, this notion that what we do abroad Right? And therefore, potentially, the, the forms of humor that we export abroad inevitably have sort of haunting effects upon the, the seat of empire. Uh, and how that argument that is made uh, you know, in post-colonial theory, what are the particular nuances of it for humor studies? Um, I'm not sure I'm well enough read to answer that question with the depth that it deserves, but I will start. Um, I approached through Edward Said because Said is a cultural critic, cultural theorist, and a literary theorist. And when I first began thinking about this stuff, I was thinking about literary humor. I was thinking about... Connecticut yanking King Arthur's court. And I was thinking about um, Washington Irving. And, um, and I'm not a political theorist. And so my comfort zone and my familiarity with the political theorists is just lesser. Said had several points that struck me as just dead on relevant for the project of dealing with splintering dealing with the political valences of works that didn't necessarily appear political on their surface, that is in their ostensible themes. And in the point that he made about hybridity mm-hmm. and that his point about, cult, uh, about hybrid um, rhetorical traditions, literary traditions in particular, that struck me as so relevant. And so that's really where the idea germinated. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just in terms of the development of my argument in the article, what's funny about that to me is that in a very late stage of revision, the editors at Studies in American Humor um, I mean, all the editors weighed in. David Gelata helped me with the, um, and gave me the idea for the Dave Chappelle reference mm-hmm. at the beginning. Um, but Larry Burko, uh, Larry um, Howe, the editor, said to me, where do these ideas on imperialism come from? Mm-hmm. 
because I hadn't really traced them to anybody authoritative. And so at the very, in this very late stage of editing it, I was actually sitting in Quarry Farm doing this. <laughs> I was adding the citations to, um, to uh, Edward Said, and I had brought a copy of Cultural Imperialism with me to Elmira, to Quarry Farm, mm -hmm. uh, for the precise purpose of answering that question, um, because I knew it came from there, and, and documenting the three main points, the pillars of my argument that came from there. But they were so deeply interiorized already that um, mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about where they came from. And the third, the other, the other editor, James Garone, asked me, well, when does American, when does the American empire start anyway? Mm -hmm. And again, I had just taken for granted, of course it starts in 1787 with the, um, uh, Northwest Territory Ordinance. Of course it starts there. Um, of course it starts there because for 30 years, a monument to the Northwest Territory Ordinance sat across the street from my office <laughs> in Athens, Ohio, because Ohio University yeah. was, was the founding of Ohio University's trace to that ordinance. Um, and of course, because I studied the history of the Midwest, and I was director of a center of Midwestern culture, of course I understood that what was known as the Western Reserve was a colony, which is, you know, northern, uh, northern Ohio and parts of Indiana and Michigan. I mean, that was a colony of Connecticut. Right. Um, so, so, and defined as such, by then, and Athens, Ohio was founded by Revolutionary War veterans who came and started the university in the town and founded the town of Marietta because there was no money to pay them for their service in the Revolutionary Army. So, um, so of course it started in 1787, but you know, I hadn't thought to say that. So, so uh, um, I think it makes a huge difference when you think about um, American Empire as dating that is antedating the constitution. Yeah. Um, uh, right. That, that in thro throwing off the yoke of colonial rule from the Britons, we were immediately beginning our own. Yes. <laughs> right. Simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's, and, and, you know, I think that gets you away then from thinking of Mark Twain and the anti-imperialists as being so central to an idea of the American empire starting in 1898, right. the Spanish-American War, because it's hidden in plain sight, the American empire. Yeah, right. So the, the, the various, what, what we now see as sort of border disputes or domestic conflicts that lead up to the Civil War should probably be read as colonial wars or imperial wars, they right? Should. That, but what's interesting is that even American historians do not see them in this way yeah. until very recently. So a historian named Peter Onuf wrote the definitive work on the on the uh, Northwest Territory Ordinance, and it came out in the 80s, or maybe even, yeah, I think it came out in the 80s, the 200th anniversary of the of the ordinance. And nowhere in there does he talk about it as a, an imperial document, nowhere. Mm -hmm. But when the 
revised edition came out more recently, he does. Yeah. There's a there's a new preface to it in which he recognizes it. So it took the theory, the theory work, the theoretical work of people like Said and Negri and all the rest, um, and in American studies, John Rowe and uh, Amy Kaplan, Donald Pease. I mean, a lot of people yeah. uh, have been working on this for the past twenty years. Plus, um, it took that work of cultural studies to move back into American uh, history um, for people to reevaluate what they were seeing. Although as far back as 1948, we have the classic article on Jefferson and the empire of Liberty. So mm -hmm. it's not like it was not there. Right. Scholars recognized it, but it was understood that, you know, this was a metaphor. This wasn't a real thing, you know. This wasn't a right. real empire. Yeah. But we can see in the in the controversies over the Mexican War um, in the 1840s that, of course, people understood this to be imperialist. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I've been talking with uh, Judith Yaros Lee about American humor and matters of empire. Uh, her essay on that topic is available at marktwainstudies.org as well as all of the talks associated with the symposium she organized just one month ago. Thank you very much for being with us, Judith. Thank you, Matt. This is wonderful. <laughs> and check back next week for more on the American Vandal.